Greetings, I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. Welcome. After all is said and done, then we will know, won't we? But perhaps we can know now, if we choose to. In a previous program, I commented on the monstrous mass murder that was committed in Christchurch, New Zealand, and also on the reactive action taken by New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern in banning so-called military-style semi-automatic and assault rifles, which purportedly civilians have no need for, have no legitimate use for. And by taking this sweeping action, Ms. Ardern rendered all owners of such firearms as de facto criminals. And if they fail to comply with the demand that they hand over their now illegal firearms, they will feel the gravity of being on the wrong side of this government. The United Kingdom, its various nations, have engaged in such things for some time. But remarkably enough, banning of firearms has not eliminated gun violence. No, nor curtailed it, nor limited it, except... It has confined it being committed by vicious thugs, gangsters, and such, which were the principal committers of such actions previously, except, of course, that citizens could be ruled, citizens defending themselves, defending their families, back before the gun bans, took away their firearms, could be determined to be criminal for defending themselves and their families and loved ones and what have you. But I had many other comments to make concerning this, but I was not able to. I was constrained by the time limitations of the program. Now, you might ask yourself, why would I lead with a program element, component, coming from outside of the United States of America? Well, because this, strictly speaking, is not a program about the United States of America, even though many of the stories that I touch on do have to do with the United States of America. It is not focused on the United States of America. But also, this 
recent development in New Zealand, this action by the government in New Zealand, portends future developments for the government of the United States of America. There certainly has been a great deal of pressure and political activism this way for a very long time. And in fact, gun laws, laws unconstitutionally restricting ownership and carrying or bearing of firearms were worse (laughs) decades ago. But we can count on the mean worse again. This idea that disarming the citizenry, law-abiding citizenry, is reasonable and beneficial that this is a move in the right direction, that this is enlightened, enlightened governance and behavior, is woefully wrong, as many of the activists pushing for this know full well. But... While many are of the leftist persuasion, socialist persuasion, such as communist and fascist, those two wings of socialism, others are dupes, (laughs) and they are blindly following along and imagining that this is the way to go. Interestingly enough, prominent, prominent socialist leaders of the past championed registration of firearms followed by confiscation of firearms. And some of their names may sound familiar. Vladimir Lenin, who called for, quote, the disarming of the bourgeoisie, end quote, disarming of the middle class. Joseph Stalin, who stated, quote, if the opposition refuses to disarm, we shall disarm it ourselves. End quote. <laughs> if they don't disarm voluntarily, we will force them to disarm. We will confiscate their weapons. Joseph Stalin, who contrary to popular belief, is actually the most prodigious mass murderer of all time. If you 
take Margaret Sanger out of the picture. And then Adolf Hitler, who typically is thought to be the most prodigious mass murderer of all time, and was indeed very prolific, though only to the tune of less than half the number of murders directly committed compared to those of Joseph Stalin. Adolf Hitler, dear Adolf, he required gun permits for all people in Germany except for Nazi officials. Not only the Jews were disarmed, no, no, no. The Christians were disarmed. All Gentile German people were disarmed except for the Nazis. In 1935, Dear Adolf stated the following, quote, This year will go down in history for the first time a civilized nation had full gun registration. Our streets will be safer, our police more efficient, and the world will follow our lead into the future. End quote. The world will follow our lead of universal gun registration and subsequent confiscation. Christopher Dodd, who for many, many years enjoyed prominence in the American political Oh, what should we call this? Profession. Senator Dodd, Honorable Christopher Dodd of Connecticut, who drafted sweeping so-called gun control legislation. So whom did he look to for inspiration, for guidance, for template for his legislation. Surprise, surprise, Adolf Hitler. Yes, Adolf Hitler. Dear Adolf, generously left on file this boilerplate legislation, which Christopher Dodd, Democrat of Connecticut, Adopted. It was written in German, and so Senator Dodd needed some help with this, some assistance, which he received from the Library of Congress, who were only too happy to translate dear old Adolf's Nazi gun control legislation from the German into English. Fascinating, isn't it? Of course, our media (laughs) never see fit to report such things. But we can take pride in following the lead provided by Adolf Hitler 
in restricting gun ownership in the United States of America. Of course, we should follow Adolf and Stalin and Lenin and not follow our founding fathers. Makes entirely good sense, doesn't it? So, what is the Second Amendment that the leftists insist Americans have a love affair with? You know, just like with the fetus or the embryo and what have you. Article 2, quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, a free government, a free nation under said government. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, a free people. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. What part of shall not be infringed is it that our leaders don't understand? In Marin County, an exceedingly expensive county of the United States of America to live in, which includes San Francisco, last I knew, there had only been one dozen concealed carry permits issued over a span of the past, I don't know how many decades, one dozen. One dozen VIPs were granted concealed carry permits in the greater San Francisco area in Marin County. Huh. I guess they see things differently from the founding fathers concerning the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Well, Marin County's not alone, okay? It can join arms with Los Angeles County and San Diego County and Ventura County and the list goes on, Santa Barbara County and what have you. In terms of desire by law enforcement officials to prevent carrying, bearing of firearms by law-abiding citizens. And you find the same phenomena across the country, especially in major metropolitan areas, places like Chicago, you know, which is synonymous with gun violence. But fascinatingly enough, the inner-city gangbangers don't seem to pay attention to these things. The violent criminals never do. This only impacts law-abiding people. They're the only ones that are restricted. They're the only ones that are prevented from defending themselves against the evil. Once upon a time, some time ago, March 23rd, that sounds recent, 
1775. Patrick Henry made his famous give me liberty or give me death speech to the House of Burgesses of Virginia. This, Yes, Virginia. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. Give me liberty or give me death. Urging, of all things, military action against the British Empire. But he was completely, utterly, totally out of step with the thinking in the United States of America today that prevails in political circles. So to the Founding Fathers. But interestingly enough, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Comrade Lenin, they are in agreement (laughs) with the leftists who enjoy political power in this nation. And in agreement with the UK and other enlightened nations around the world. I know I mentioned previously about Israel being targeted for destruction by Islamists, you know, going back to, oh, 1948, the modern state of Israel, for all of its history, has been targeted for destruction. But there were rockets fired from Gaza targeting Tel Aviv. couple weeks ago. And then, lo and behold, just a few days ago, repeat attacks by rockets. We here in the United States of America, we enjoy a spacious, beautiful, rich, temperate, nation in terms of its climate, its weather. I know that may, wherever you are, that may sound, if you're in the United States of America, that statement about temperate weather may seem at odds with reality. But if you compare, (laughs) as bitter as it can be here in winter in certain parts of the United States of America for long, prolonged, protracted periods of time, such as where I am, or as blazingly hot as it can be in other areas, and so forth, if you compare our weather, our climate, with places such as the taiga and the tundra and the Arctic Circle and the Antarctic, and the equator, and what have you, you'll find that comparatively we enjoy a temperate climate. But 
this United States of America, it has vast area. And yet even that could be contested by others. They'd say, no, we're not that large a, a landmass, that large a country, not compared to Russia. <laughs> what do they have, five time zones, all land, you know, in one contiguous landmass? And so forth. But we enjoy separation from countries, nations, which may not be friendly towards us. Yes, we have this border to the south with Mexico, and the drug cartels like to visit the United States of America and prey upon the citizenry of the United States of America, and so forth. But still, we enjoy buffer areas, (laughs) and we enjoy separation thanks to the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, and what have you. Not so Israel. Tiny, tiny, dare I say infinitesimally small Israel. And some would make the mistake of thinking infinitesimally important or unimportant. Not so. But it has been under attack, under a prolonged, protracted, and yet shifting and varying state of siege from Islamist terror going back to 1948. Yes, some would say, oh, that, many would say that is a terrible misstatement of fact. It's a statement of fact. The reason that we don't see headlines daily of destruction in Israel is because despite all of Israel's blunders and errors and leftism, socialism, (laughs) nigh unto communism, and secularism, secular humanism, including refusal to execute destroyers and slaughterers who attempt to destroy the people of Israel. But in spite of all of that, Israel has stood firm and strong against attacks from the enemies that surround her. Israel enjoys none of the advantages of the United States of America, no. Nor of other Western nations, but still it stands. Despite continual Attempts to destroy her. Still it stands in spite of grievous lack of support down through the decades from the likes of the United States of America and the United Kingdom. Britain's shameful, disgraceful, monstrous Behavior towards Israel should have guaranteed 
the absolute annihilation of the Israeli people back in 1948. Should have, but did not. No thanks to dear, dear Britain. Speaking of Britain, but before I do, let me just say, I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. And whatever's right and true and good in this program is thanks to my Lord and God and King and His Holy Son, Jesus, So God the Father and God the Son, and whatever is lacking, erring, so forth, that's on me, that's due to me. But in dear old United Kingdom proper, ground zero of UK, Britain, and London, members of Parliament engaged in a political exercise in which they seized control of the parliamentary timetable for a series of votes pertaining to Brexit, the drop-dead deadline of which has been moved ever so slightly (laughs) into the future uh, to April 12th. But anyway, they are seeking to control the process instead of allowing Theresa May to have her way. (laughs) Lots of luck, MPs, but something to look forward to as far as what takes place regarding the European Union and the United Kingdom. The European Union, which was created, fashioned to, in the view of some, almost as a, uh, a reconstitution, if you will, of the former Roman Empire. Oh, I know, many would say, oh, that's completely off. But no. A process by which nations surrender national sovereignty, including national currencies, including limitations on who may come and go from these nations, giving up control over what people may enter this nation or that nation, giving up all manner of control and vesting it in a centralized government in Brussels, Belgium. Brussels, Belgium, which I remember decades ago, the focus of various individuals who saw Brussels, Belgium, as being the heart of the beast... It had a supercomputer complex back then, which, of course, is nothing remotely, faintly compared to today. Today's computers, supercomputers, but and quantum computers. But it was called the Beast. <laughs> it literally, literally was called the Beast, and uh, there was much hypothesizing about that. But 
the European Union is a de facto, you could say paper lion, but nonetheless almost a reconstitution of the Roman Empire. Which is why, of course, Britain needs to be included in that, right? (laughs) Well, we will see what happens with Britain's attempted departure, whether it will be permitted. Because the powers that be behind the scenes who have been responsible for trying to constrain and control all of the European nations have been up in arms about this exit of Britain from the European Union and have done everything in their power to prevent it. They never imagined that it would receive popular support in Britain. But we will see what will become of Britain with regard to this. Meanwhile, the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve, the para-governmental body, dare I say unconstitutional body, of the Federal Reserve, or Federal Reserve System, or Federal Reserve Banks, well, they're in the news because the San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank produced a report which focuses on global climate change and the necessity for the Federal Reserve Bank system to get involved in combating global climate change. Yes, amazingly enough, this is true. (laughs) And perhaps they should solicit the assistance of the 16-year-old girl from Sweden, I believe, who is, of course, nominated for Nobel Peace Prize for her stellar work of political activism concerning global climate change. Something to look forward to now that the San Francisco Fed, Federal Reserve Bank, has gotten involved. Of course, it will be all of the Federal Reserve System will marshal their not inconsiderable powers and riches and extra constitutional powers and what have you in this great cause this great cause of combating global climate change, which truly is fascinating. And the ultimate, the ultimate answer to combating global climate change is, of course, first admitting that you have the problem, right? You have this addiction to climate change. You can't help yourselves. And getting together and having this worldwide powwow and admitting that all of you, that each individual nation is powerless, powerless to 
resolve this terrible, gripping problem, the most extreme problem in the world, purportedly. So the answer lies in all of the nations of the world, all of the countries, all of the powers joining together in one vast coalition, which is more than a coalition because it requires the combination of them all into one government eventually, not that far in the future. It requires all of them to cede all of their power, all of their lawmaking power, all of their ruling, governing powers to one power and to be subject to that power. This is what the worldwide court is about. This is at the essence of it, of all of these movements. It's to bring every nation, every people group, every country under the control of one master ruler, one worldwide regime. Now, some people might imagine that the United States of America will never, never go along with such a thing. (laughs) Well, it just so happens that the only nation that will absolutely, utterly, totally, completely refuse is Israel, which is, and I base that simply on the Bible, but it is, it's breathtaking, this idea that tiny, infinitesimally small Israel shall refuse to knuckle under while former Sole world superpower, United States, complies. And other nuclear-powered Western nations like the UK and France and so forth. It is just almost unimaginable. But it's true. And I know that based on God's Word, not based on what any amount of experts out there have to say, but simply, truly, on the basis of the Bible, is that that shall take place. Israel shall be the last free nation standing and ultimately will be besieged by an army consisting of every nation on the face of the earth, all of which are under the control of one worldwide regime. But, (laughs) Anyway, that is in the offing. And believe it or not, that's not in the far distant future of several millennia from now. Okay, it's just not. It's not only not several millennia from now, it's not several centuries from now. It's not a few centuries from now. It's not one century from now. And personally, I'm convinced it is not a few decades from now. 
Meanwhile, I was fascinated with this one story, which is um, available via Nautilus, a website entitled Nautilus. And the title of it is The Trouble with Theories of Everything. The Trouble with Theories of Everything, which I think would more properly, more accurately be written as The Trouble with All Theories. More simplistically written that way. The Trouble with All Theories is my version. But one statement which is the condensation of this one line, one sentence, I think is particularly pithy and and brief. You'll be pleased that it's brief since I'm not. But it says, quote, we know of no theory that both makes contact with the empirical world, and is absolutely and always true. End quote. Permit me to repeat that. We know of no theory that both makes contact with the empirical world and is absolutely and always true. Fascinating. Now, that's their statement. And again, in this article that you can find at Nautilus website by Lawrence M. Krauss. Yes, it goes back, this goes back to 2015. But I would put it, again, more simply, (laughs) and I would state this, that there is no theory that has been offered by mankind, by men or by women, that is universally true. None. Well, how can you say that? What, what do you know? Obviously, you don't know science. <laughs> well, but these people do. <laughs> the people that are being referred to by the author of this, they know science. And he knows science. And I am simply going beyond what he says. And he can take issue with with my version of it. But we may not be saying exactly the same thing, but these are very near one another. As far as I am concerned... There is no theory that has ever been offered by any person that is absolutely and always true. And there have been some great, great scientists down through the ages. The likes of Sir Isaac Newton and Leonardo da Vinci and so on and so forth. But Galileo. But God Almighty, he is the author and the finisher of all. 
He is the mastermind behind all. He is the source of truth. And he has given us a glimpse of his truth in the Holy Bible, and we can reject it, you know, as so many brilliant people do. Speaking of brilliant people, there was an article in The Atlantic, also back to 2015, by co-authors, and I am going to oh, mispronounce their names, I'm afraid, Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt. And it's an interesting article, and I commend it to you, again, on The Atlantic. And the title of it is The Coddling of the American Mind. The Coddling of the American Mind. And there are many things from that article that I would like to share, but I don't feel the freedom to do so. So let me just give you one statement from it. And this one professor who identifies himself as a so-called liberal professor, a liberal professor, he stated that his liberal students terrify him. I just thought that was just so perfect. If you look for a minute away from this, and there were there was all kinds of fascinating, fascinating uh, statements in this article, but if you look away from this and away from the United States of America, and you look to places like France, and its universities, and Germany, and its, and of course, and then Germany's free universities for, oh, you know, for Islamist terrorists from around the world, that sort of thing. (laughs) You look at the communist regimes around the world, at how they came to be, how they gained power, whether it happens to be bloody red communist China or the Khmer Rouge Pol Pot's regime in Cambodia or whether it happens to be the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union, or Hitler's Third Reich, Nazi Reich, whether it's communism or fascism, look around the world as you will. Cuba, Cuba, and so forth. You will find that a common thread, a common theme is extremely, stridently leftist professors, socialist academicians who have done everything in their power to promote communism or fascism. But interestingly enough, that once communism has taken over or fascism 
has taken over, so many of these extremely influential, successfully influential academicians and professors find themselves to be less than appreciated. Persona non gratis find themselves facing a firing squad or locked away in some hole for the rest of their lives or they're just hacked to death or hung publicly or whatever. Fascinatingly enough, this is true. You will find it. If you look for it, you will find this to be true. The most extreme example of this that comes to mind, to my mind, is Cambodia, where every person wearing glasses was deemed an enemy of the state and was murdered because glasses denoted education. Why else would they have glasses? except to read. Well, yes, I know that's incredibly simplistic that that would be thought to be the case, that they would be intellectuals if they're wearing glasses. But it's true. They were targeted for destruction, all who were wearing glasses. A less select group than academia. But I just think that is so precious here a professor who identifies himself as liberal, which means leftist, socialist. Oh, no, Brad, it doesn't mean that. Yes, it does. (laughs) He could call himself a progressive. I don't care what he wants to call himself, self-identify as, what he wants to refer to himself as. He refers to his students as liberal And then goes on to say they terrify him. He's not being cute. He's not attempting to be funny. Not attempting to be cute. Not attempting to be clever. But stating it as categorical fact. Fascinating. You could say, well, so what? So he's a coward and he's, I don't know, maybe he's got some other issues, you know. Agoraphobia. This phobia, that phobia, all these phobias. Uh, But no, no. It's that the leftists, the socialists, whether they happen to be communists or fascists, are exceedingly virulently opposed to those who do not agree with them. This is true of Islamists. This is a hallmark, an identifying feature. And I just think it's so fascinating. I mean, the article isn't about that. It isn't about social unrest per se. 
It isn't about leftist students being dangerous to society, but rather it takes a very different view and it's, you know, feeling sorry for them, I guess. I mean, for these poor students that are just, they're so, oh, whatever. Uh, anyway, you need to take a look at that article if, if you care to see what the authors actually have to say about it, because I'm certainly not giving the uh, the same interpretation of that. But meanwhile, speaking of leftists, and you know this grievous intolerance towards truthfulness and righteousness on college campuses, and angry, hateful, intolerant, violent or near-violent receptions, if you will, from student bodies to various speakers. Not towards evil speakers, no. Not towards murderers and destroyers, no. (laughs) No, those aren't the ones that they have the problem with. But leftists, these leftist students, perhaps you've heard of a Pete Davidson. His name means nothing to me. But he's a so-called comedian, stand-up comic, and an exceedingly profane young man. And I thought it was just perfect. I saw this uh, coverage concerning him that he performed, if you can call it that, in New Jersey at a performing arts center. And he was addressing the crowd. And a member of the audience, whom they identify as a heckler, But he responded to him and responded to his his, uh, monologue. (laughs) And this guy, Pete Davidson, stopped the performance and demanded of the crowd that they hand over this person, point him out. (laughs) And he... This Pete Davidson was incapable of giving a single sentence without extreme profanity. Consequently, I cannot, I don't, I'm not going to quote him and then, you know, and delete out what he said. But he demanded of this audience that they point out who this is, turn him over so he can be removed. And it goes on, but. It is so perfect. Because see, the leftists, and this guy is, and vile and lewd and profane as they come, and supposedly a comedian. Of course, this brings Bill Maher to mind. (laughs) Howard Stern and some others. Uh, But they are utterly intolerant. And yet, of course, they are embraced 
by those who are utterly, totally intolerant of godliness and righteousness. I just just think it's, it's fantastic. The leftists can get away with this. The strident leftists, the profane, the vile, the lewd, they can get away with refusing any dissension, refusing anyone saying anything to them that is not worshipful and praising them. They can get away with that. The good and the godly cannot. I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. After all is said and done, then we will know, won't we? But perhaps we can know now if we choose to. Thank you.